welcome to Reinventing Home. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and today we're going to be talking about those relationships that didn't survive sheltering in place. For many couples, stay-at-home orders were an opportunity to grow closer, yet others were torn apart as old conflicts resurfaced and old wounds reopened. Living in tight quarters became a pressure cooker, and now these folks are ready to call it quits. My guest today is attorney Pauline Tesler, a pioneer of collaborative divorce, a team approach that helps families get through this challenging process in a way that lets everybody keep some sense of home intact. Collaborative divorce is a growing trend. It addresses a family's psychological and financial needs and provides many layers of support. Pauline has trained thousands of attorneys in the U.S. and around the world in this process, changing divorce from a harsh adversarial experience to one that supports the delicate process of restructuring the home. For this groundbreaking work, the American Bar Association gave Pauline its first Lawyer as Problem Solver Award. She practices family law today in Northern California and is the founder of the Integrative Law Institute, applying collaborative techniques across the board from business and partnership law to social justice issues. Pauline, thanks for joining us today. It's really good to be with you. I want to start with this question. Why do we expect to see a spike in divorce rates after the first phase of the coronavirus? Well, it's really not hard to understand People have been having tensions in their marriage that they managed to live with one way or another before the lockdown, spending a lot of time outside the house, conducting affairs with other people sometime, throwing themselves into work at the office. None of those things are possible. And so people are forced to be together and the tension just escalates. And there also, of course, are people who had been planning gradually to separate from the spouse and maybe we're just on the verge of doing so and suddenly they can't. In addition, a lot of people are out of work and we know that scarce resources are a huge escalating factor in tension between spouses. So it's a perfect storm. What have we seen coming out of China in terms of divorce rates? Yeah, that's kind of sobering news. As China gradually loosened the lockdown restrictions, they've seen unprecedented spikes in divorce rates. In one major city in China, there were lines stretching around the block of people who wanted to get into the courthouse and file for divorce. A 25% spike just in the first week or two as loosening started to happen. Is there a similar concern here in the United States? In this country, the courts have been totally shut down since whenever in your state the lockdown started going into place. So what's being predicted is that there is going to be a surge of divorce filings and also a backlog of cases that already were on file, waiting for trial, waiting for hearings and that it could be well over six months and as much as a year or more before people can hope to get in front of a judge. So you think there's a big surprise in store for people now? 
Absolutely, if they're thinking of handling their divorces that way. But of course, I don't think any sensible person who's serious considered divorce planning would want to be in the court system anyway. Collaborative divorce is what I consider as the gold standard in terms of -of out-of-court conflict resolution. Mediation is perfectly appropriate, too, for couples who haven't been married that long and don't have that many financial issues that need resolving, don't have complex emotional situations or parenting issues. But for people who do have longer marriages and more complicated issues, collaborative divorce is the way to go. There's no question about it. And even more traditional lawyers who are now having to deal with the inability to run into court and see what the judge would do are discovering that actually, if you encourage your clients to sit down and take a breath and Try to have some appreciation for the fears that the other spouse is experiencing. It's fear that drives conflict in a divorce. And if you can be simply a considerate human being and try to take an orientation that says, we can talk about this, we might be able to work something out, even the most adversarial lawyers are having to do this now. So I think we're going to see some long-term changes. I think that this is going to represent a long overdue normalizing of collaborative divorce as being the way that people should first consider how to resolve their divorce. Well, that's the good news. I'd like you to describe this process for our listeners who may not be familiar with collaborative divorce. What kind of a team is involved and how does it work? Well, the brilliant thing about collaborative divorce was the inspiration of one lawyer in Minnesota way back in 1990. He declared unilateral disarmament. He said, I'm not going to go to court anymore. And it turned out that the other divorce lawyers in the community really liked him, wanted to see him representing the other spouse. And so they just sat at the table longer and talked about the issues instead of running to a judge for a decision. California is the mothership for the interdisciplinary team collaborative divorce model, which I referred to as the gold standard. And the way it works is Everybody signs formal agreements that nobody is going to go to court during the pendency of the collaborative process. And if it turns out that it's not working well and the clients want to go to divorce court, they can, but the lawyers and other professionals cannot go with them. We are there only to help them reach solutions that work for them voluntarily, consensually. The members of the team, the professional team, are not just lawyers because if you think about it, lawyers don't learn in law school how to deal with the emotional side of divorce, and the emotional divorce is much more complicated than the financial divorce. So we bring into the team mental health professionals who work with the couple on communication skills and on developing a parenting plan for the children. So a collaborative team then consists of a very specially trained lawyer, And it consists of a psychologist or a coach for the family members to help them work through their emotions. Not a mental health professional. In the model that I think is the best, there is a mental health professional working in a coaching capacity with each of the divorcing spouses. Because unlike what therapists do when it's family counseling to try to keep people together, these are two people who need to separate. Let me just also add that in challenging cases, there is a third mental health professional, a child development specialist who comes in as the voice of the children into the negotiations and the voice to the children about what 
is happening in the divorce. Children are the left out people in a divorce. Nobody talks to them in any kind of conventional divorce process. Not last in importance is the financial neutral who brings in a financial planning and analysis orientation to what otherwise is a war of dueling experts about what the financial facts are. Thank you. Thank you for that good description of what the team does. Can you tell me a story that shows how the collaborative divorce team helps people to hang on to some kind of sense of home when home is actually falling apart? I want to tell you a story about a case in which the collaborative divorce model was a lifesaver and a family saver and a home saver. This was a couple who lived in the South Bay. The man was a physician and the wife was a homemaker. She had stayed at home raising their daughter. They had one child, a girl who was an older teenager at the time of the divorce. The wife was extremely frightened about the financial side of things, didn't think that she'd be able to create a home for herself. Even though that was vitally important for her, she was interested in interior design, but didn't have competitive skills because she'd been out of the market so long. And so one thing we accomplished was an arrangement that allowed her to get training, sophisticated training as an interior designer, so that by the time we got toward the end of the divorce process, she was really confident not only that she would be able to make a living, but also that she was going to be able to make a beautiful home for herself whenever she had to leave the family residence. But much more important is what happened next, which is their daughter became extremely depressed, not depressed simply because of the divorce. She began abusing drugs and she got pregnant. We had a child specialist on the team who immediately went into gear to get emergency resources in place to help this girl. But then the coaches started having conversations with the parents about how they were going to co-parent this girl in spite of separating into two households. I did not hear from the family for a while because the divorce process was suspended while all of this attention to the daughter's emergency was going on. And when we next heard from the couple and the coaches, what we learned was that they had decided to reconcile. And that was maybe six years ago, and they are still married. That's an extraordinary story. So the whole process of collaboration can really lead anywhere. That's a really good way to put it. When a person makes an appointment with a divorce lawyer, they think that what they need is a divorce because things have got more stressful than they can bear. But I was taught by my first mentor in the family law field, a wonderful Hungarian woman who was married to a psychiatrist, who said to me, Pauline, you think because they're in your office they need a divorce? Look, they may need to see their minister or rabbi. They may need to see an accountant or they need to, go, need to go into counseling or they may even just need a vacation. So don't be so hasty. I really took that to heart when I was a conventional lawyer. And it is the essence of the collaborative process that we make no assumptions about what the couple or the individual spouses do or don't need from us. We listen. That is something that traditional lawyers are taught not to do in law school. They're taught to keep their focus entirely on what they want to achieve. And if they're hearing something that doesn't advance that goal, don't pay attention to it. So if people go into a traditional adversarial divorce, it's just like pouring accelerant on the flames. It absolutely is. 
It always is, because what happens is that an angry and frightened pair of marital partners go to their separate corners with their separate advocates. The advocates hear only the client's worst fears and most anguished sorrows. And lawyers are very quick by temperament to jump on the white horse. So I see my client as Snow White. I see your client as Hitler. And reciprocally, it's Prince Charming and the Wicked Witch of the West. And the positions just get more and more extreme as a lawyer prepares a client for trial. So it becomes this archetypal battle of good and evil, and the couple gets lost completely. That is absolutely it in a nutshell. And we simply don't do that in the collaborative process. Having mental health professionals on the team is a learning experience for the lawyers. We actually discover how to do conflict resolution instead of war because in the collaborative process, the entire team debriefs. And if something didn't go well, we figure out what could have been done more skillfully. And that's what we try to do next time. If apologies or amends are needed, we do that. It's a restorative process the collaborative process. As the pandemic unfolds, there are going to be a series of bumps in the road. Nobody knows really what they have financially to work with anymore in a divorce. Nobody knows where they're going to be emotionally because the entire culture is changing. We're in a position that I think is really unprecedented for the divorcing couple. And it's a hard time to lose a home. I think you've put your finger on something really profound here. The home is the place where life has been led. The home is where the sense of self has manifested in the world. When we just say the word divorce, everything is being lost. And the house is the most visible symbol of that loss. And it's absolutely predictable that a person in that situation is going to feel that the house is the life preserver. The house is the only thing keeping them sane, keeping them grounded. And that if they lose that, I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that the emotional state is, if I lose the house too, I will die. And the challenge is to give enormous respect to that emotional reality. The house is the repository of all one's dreams and memories. So this is the difference between a traditional divorce, which in litigation terms considers the house as a financial asset, and a collaborative divorce, which understands that the house is everybody's primary attachment. That's absolutely right. And if, as a traditional divorce lawyer, my client comes to me in that state of panic and says, I've got to have the house, that's my primary goal, my job is to magnify that with a megaphone and say, She's going to get that house and do everything to make that happen. Whereas in a collaborative divorce, we start not with objectives like that, but with what are the facts here? What does this family's income look like? What do the assets look like? What are the prospects for employment after the divorce? With typical middle-class families, if, let's say, the wife gets the house in that situation, she will get nothing else. And so she will be house poor. She may not have long-term spousal support. She may have impaired employment options. If I try to tell that to my client as a traditional lawyer, I will get fired. My client will say to me, whose lawyer are you anyway? But in the collaborative process, we build from the facts. Then we bring in 
goals, priorities, and interests, and then we brainstorm solutions. And by the time we go through all of that examining of what would it look like your life 10 years from now if you do get the house, my clients often say, oh, it's very sad, but I don't want that. I don't want that picture for me and the children. I don't want to be even poorer than my prospects might be without the house. I want to have the opportunity to pull my life together financially for myself and the kids. I'm wondering if you can give me an example of a couple who collaborated after their divorce beyond your wildest dreams. One of the most remarkable collaborative stories involved a young couple with one child who, at the time that the husband came to me, let's call him John, By the time John came to me, their child was about three years old. The wife was staying at home as a mom. She had had a career that she was just starting to build as a massage therapist, but she hadn't been making much money. John was having a skyrocketing career as a music producer, and his wife had been feeling really left behind, lost, He wasn't paying a lot of attention to home because he was really excited about his career. And she felt that he wasn't being an engaged parent. And she did what people unfortunately often do in that situation. She began having an affair with somebody who was paying attention to her. When John came to me about a divorce, he was angry, but he also had the wisdom to recognize that this was the mother of his child. And that if she didn't do well, his child wasn't going to do well. Less wise people in that situation get involved in wars about who's the better parent and who's going to get the child. But he immediately got into a much more empathic frame of mind. And he worked with me and with the lawyer for his wife to try to figure out a way that she could have an income stream and some self-esteem that would keep her from bouncing from affair to affair. So he helped her start a business, a store, where she would be selling exercise and health supplies. And she was excited about it. And he was willing to put money into that project up front before they had launched into the negotiations about who was going to end up with what. By the time we got to the point of entering into a settlement agreement, the wife had found a new partner and had become pregnant and had given birth to a baby with this new partner. And she intended to marry him after the divorce was final. And again, other people in John's situation could easily have gone into an emotional tailspin and everything could have been lost. But instead, what happened was that she gave birth to the child Her new husband was getting started in the music field himself. John gave him contacts and some help to try to develop his own career. And more importantly, John realized that the new baby was the brother of his little son. And so they began exchanging both children in a shared parenting plan, what could have been terribly confusing and angry situation instead turned out to be a really supportive situation for the two children who, in essence, each had four parents. What could be better? That's a lovely story. 
because I know you view collaborative law in its broadest possible terms. And I'm wondering if any of the tools in your collaborative toolkit might apply on a cultural level. Well, I think that the underpinnings of the collaborative process are a restorative process. I'm thinking, for example, of the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, which was truly astonishing in a country that had been literally two countries. The apartheid system was so cruel, and yet people were able to sit in the same room, and those who had been the oppressors had been willing to listen to stories of how life had been for those under the heel of an apartheid system. If that can happen, then it seems to me that there's hope for authentic conversations in this country between factions of our large family. What the collaborative process teaches and depends upon is a kind of deep listening, not just to what one another is saying, but to the emotional frame from which those communications arise, from the fears and the hopes that are driving the conflict. What I think that collaborative process has to bring to the larger culture is the understanding that Resolving conflict is a necessary human skill that starts with respect and the desire to understand what the other person is feeling as well as thinking and saying. That's teachable. We've proved it in the legal profession, which is a profession founded on not listening, on just fighting. And the lawyers have been the leaders in developing a new process that is restorative in its essence. I think The larger meaning of collaborative practice is that conflict resolution is a skill set that every human being needs to have because conflict is present in every human life. If you understand conflict correctly, truly, conflict arises when how things are being done isn't working anymore. And the status quo has to change in some major way. The conflict is the red flag waving that says, pay attention, change is needed. Our natural human reaction is to get angry and start throwing stones across the conflict. What we have to do is you go into it, you go toward it, you go deep within it to find out more about what's not working here. Why isn't it working? And what could we change? so that we could get along again. Well, you're drawing on neuropsychology, too, because what you're talking about here is helping people move from the part of the brain that is locked in fight or flight, the fear center of the brain, to a more empathetic, compassionate, open stance. That's how I teach conflict resolution to lawyers. That's the work of the Integrative Law Institute, and it's founded on everything that I teach grows out of teaching about the triune human brain. And you're right. When clients who are angry and frightened come into a divorce lawyer's office, they are living in their reptilian brain, which is the survival center, the fight or flight center that says something is coming toward me that could kill me and I have got to either fight it and kill it or it's going to kill me. Do we generally see more broken marriages in times of crisis when that fight or flight instinct has been aroused anyway? 
Well, that's, I think, what we were talking about to begin with, why we're going to see a surge in divorces and why domestic violence is surging. People are frightened. They're angry. They don't know where to turn. And all security is gone. So everything looks like a threat. The task in a well-run collaborative divorce, if we want to help people come out of the process better able to lead their own lives and parent their children, is to help them rise from the fear reactions of the reptilian brain, which biochemically are meant to make it impossible for us to think straight, because we're not supposed to be thinking. We're supposed to be running or killing. That's what we're supposed to do, evolutionarily speaking. What we need to do, the task for the professional helpers, is to help our clients rise up through the limbic brain, which allows us to feel empathy and compassion for ourselves and for others, which is the precondition for listening deeply and hearing, which is the precondition for forward problem-solving thinking, which is unavailable when people are angry and frightened. That's beautifully put. I just want to clarify for our listeners that the triune brain is the oldest part of the brain, the reptilian fight-or-flight brain, the limbic brain, which is the emotional brain, and the cortex, which is the thinking, problem-solving, integrating part of the brain. Absolutely right. And we have all three at all times working in harmony when things are normal and we're feeling comfortable and at ease and just going about our lives. We're able to think into the future, do cause and effect projections, problem solving, come up with new ideas. The absolutely unique human edge, evolutionarily speaking. What I'm hearing is something pretty remarkable, that people who have the good sense or the good fortune or both to go through a collaborative divorce process are getting training, really basic training in how to live. That's exactly it. What we're doing, I guess you ought to say culturally, is a kind of remedial education in what conflict is and how to treat it as a constructive experience. I'm reminded of something that Confucius said, the stability of the home is the building block for the stability of the culture. That's absolutely correct. Confucius put it in a cultural sense. My friend and colleague, Jean Bolin, has put it in a psychological sense. Basically, what she said is that conflict in the home leads to children growing up in an environment and lacking skills for dealing with conflict so that they come out into the community as fomenters of conflict rather than as resolvers of conflict. Collaborative divorce is about so much more than ending a marriage well. It also teaches critical social skills. Well, we like to think of it as transformative of individuals and transformative of cultures. So thank you for helping us to explain that. Thank you so much for being here today, Pauline, and for giving people who are going through divorce not just a sense of hope, but a sense of purpose and meaning, and that they can be the carriers of consciousness. It's been a tremendous pleasure talking with you about this. Thank you. 